0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jeff Schessel to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Jeff worked as a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, as a communication strategist, and even as a cartoonist. His previous books include Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt vs. the Supreme Court, and Mutual Contempt, Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and The Feud That Defined a Decade. Today, we'll be talking about his latest title, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War, which is published by W.W. Norton. Jeff, prior to the launch of Sputnik, what was the state of America's rocket and space programs?
1: Well, the space program such as it was prior to Sputnik was really divided among the military branches. The Air Force had its own program. They're building their own missiles. They had their own notion of how they were going to get human beings into space and what, why we should even bother. The Navy had its own program and so did the Army. And so there was a, a lot of duplication. There were gaps. There was a lot of feuding actually going on among the military branches as to who was going to dominate this, this new field. And Eisenhower, after Sputnik, was facing a lot of different pressures, and uh, one of them was to shut down the endless argument among the military branches over who was in charge of of man and space, as it was called. And Eisenhower's answer in 1958 was none of you. And we're going to create a new civilian space agency, NASA.
0: It wouldn't be the American government if several alphabet agencies weren't warring with each other, it seems.
1: That's right. And Eisenhower being budget conscious and being small C conservative was not particularly eager to create another one but for reasons we might discuss, he, he felt ultimately that he had no choice. He was very reluctant to create what he disparagingly called a great department of space.
0: When Sputnik, the news was announced, he seemed not very perturbed by it at all, while everyone else seemed to be in chicken little mode.
1: He wasn't perturbed. In fact, it probably would have been to his advantage to be a little bit more perturbed because this was scary stuff as far as most Americans were concerned, and not just Americans, but people across the free world. You know, the the booster rocket that carried Sputnik up into orbit continued to circle around there for a while, and you could see the glint of it at night from the Earth. And people were terrified by the sight of this thing that it was up above. This was a, a spectacular and very scary new notion. And so Eisenhower stood there at a press conference about five days later, and not only was he unimpressed, but he also seemed to think the whole thing was sort of a big joke. And he said, and this is a quote, he said, look, they just put one small ball up in the air. And other members of his administration said things like it was a hunk of iron and anybody could throw something like that up into the atmosphere. Problem was that nobody else had and in fact, the United States was trying and and was to that point failing to get its own satellites up in the air. And so uh, it, it was clear to just about everybody but Eisenhower and some of his senior officials that this was an extremely worrisome thing. And it was also worrisome that the president didn't seem to get it.
0: Well, are there practical differences between a rocket that's used to deliver astronauts and cargo into space Versus an intercontinental ballistic missile that's intended to deliver a nuclear warhead, are the technologies overlapping at all?
1: Well, the technologies are overlapping, but they're not the same. And so there are meaningful differences. And in fact, this is getting a little ahead of things in the chronology. But I would just say, by way of example, that the Atlas rocket, which was the rocket that carried John Glenn into orbit in February '62, had been a very effective rocket as an ICBM. It was easy to maneuver and to aim and to move around. It was uh, from the perspective of the Air Force, which had championed the rocket. It was a great missile. The problem arose when you stuck a capsule on the top of it and you changed the configuration. And it threw a lot of things off. There were a lot of problems with this, this rocket under that configuration. And in 1959... They tested it eight times with the mercury capsule configuration uh, in one form or another, and it failed six out of eight times. And when this thing failed, it, it failed. <laughs> I mean, it was blowing up spectacularly on the launch pad or, or just above it. So the, the difficulty in getting this very successful ICBM, man rated, as they put it in those days, safe enough to put a human being on top of in a capsule was, was a very different matter.
0: One thing that seemed to magnify the difference between the success of the two rival programs was that the Soviets didn't offer the same level of transparency as America did. So what were some of the major failures the Soviet program had that were out of the public view?
1: The Soviets, you're right, they were they were allowed to fail in secret. Nobody knew where even their launch pad was. We had Cape Canaveral. Nobody was quite sure where they were launching their rockets. So rockets were blowing up without our knowing about it. In fact, a cosmonaut died in a horrific fire during the the, the training process. And it wasn't known at the time. In fact, it wasn't known or, or confirmed until I think it was the 1990s. And so another uh, rocket exploded and, and killed a, a large number of, of, of people in the process.
0: It was around 100 people, wasn't it?
1: It was around 100 people. Uh, it was horrific. And yet... The rest of the world was unaware because the Soviet Union, of course, was a totalitarian system of government and they weren't publicizing any of this. They were only publicizing their successes. And so what this created in the minds of Americans, even though we understood this about the Soviet Union and we knew that they couldn't possibly be perfect when it came to their space program, all we saw were their great triumphs. And so it created a, a sense of, of the Soviet space program as, as, a, as a juggernaut, as, as unstoppable, as infallible. And you could tell people that it wasn't, but you couldn't prove it.
0: And this perception played right into the hands of Senator Lyndon Johnson, because he used that as a cudgel against the Republicans in the late 50s.
1: He did. So while the Soviets failed in secret, the United States failed in public for all the world to see. And so every time one of these rockets blew up on the launch pad or every time it sent its uh, capsule into the sea rather than into space, it was front page news and it was in the newsreels around the world. And so while Eisenhower looked to minimize Sputnik, Johnson seized the opportunity. I mean, on the one hand, he did this in earnest. He really believed, as he often said, that if the Soviet Union had unfettered control of the heavens, then it would be able to control Earth. He was very quick to say that. John Kennedy said something very much like that, but not for another three years. Johnson was was right on top of this. But the other reason was that he saw political opportunity. And one of his advisors wrote him a memo right after Sputnik and said, you should plunge heavily into this one. It might get you elected president in, in 1960. So Johnson did, and he, he led a series of hearings on Capitol Hill. He was the majority leader at the time in the Senate, and he ran weeks of hearings beginning in the fall of, of 1957, bringing all sorts of experts and generals and admirals in front of him to explain uh, why we were behind and why this was so dangerous. And he helped in this way to, to generate a lot of momentum behind the idea of a civilian space agency, which, as I said before, Eisenhower resisted. And he resisted for a little while longer, but it achieved over the course of 1958 a kind of inevitability. And so the two of them, Johnson and Eisenhower, hashed out a compromise and and the bill was signed and NASA was created. But this wasn't a simple
0: party line decision and attitude because there were Democrats that questioned the space program when there were so many needs when it came to human services and education in the country
1: this was true in the 1950s and this continued to be true during the 1960s actually increasingly as the numbers the dollars the, that were being spent on the space program continued to mount and went you know way up of course in, into the billions there were concerns uh, on the left of the democratic party and not just on the left that we should be spending this money on education, that we had all sorts of problems in this country. We had a a massive portion of of our population in poverty and and so on. And that this money um, to send human beings into space to what? To look around? It was really not clear why they were being sent in the first place. And they never got very far with this argument because the argument on the other side was national security, that we had to compete because the Soviets were doing it. And if we allowed them, again, to uh, have space to themselves, it was going to be an extraordinarily dangerous situation uh, for the United States going forward.
0: Even many of the engineers and scientists working with NASA shared that belief, saying, why should we put humans up there? They're just going to make mistakes.
1: There were a number of different concerns about sending humans up, and and that was one of them. There was a sense that this was keeping in mind that at this point, Nobody had even sent animals into orbit. And then when the Soviets sent a dog and we sent, began to send monkeys, even that didn't really answer the concerns of what would happen to a human being and to human judgment when, when a human was sent in, a shot into the vacuum of space. And I, I found some fascinating documents that I that I cite in the book. NASA biomedical experts running through all of the horrific possibilities of what might happen to a human being who manages to get into space, assuming a successful rocket launch, for example, maybe their nervous systems would fire randomly and erratically and cause them to go crazy. I mean, these were the sorts of things that people were worrying very seriously about, and there was really no way to disprove it until you had gone ahead and, and sent a human being up into space so we could see for for ourselves. So that was one set of concerns, but there was another on the part of the scientists, and that was ultimately that man in space, as they called it then, was a huge drain on resources with very little return scientifically. Scientists were more interested in things like the magnetic fields around the earth or what we could learn looking down from space on weather systems, what we could learn about meteorology, for example. And there was a feeling on the part of a lot of scientists, including members of the the president's scientific advisory group, that If you decided to to send human beings for whatever reason to space, it was just going to drain all the money and all the expertise away from all of these worthwhile endeavors.
0: You know, there may be about four different quadrants to consider in the program. There was defense, science, technology, and public relations. And there were a lot of people that said that this program was just more of a PR thing than anything else for kind of an advertisement for the American system and way of
1: life. I think that it was less an advertisement for the American way of life than it was an acknowledgement that the United States was in a global competition between two systems, between democracy and totalitarianism, and that we were working to prove the credibility and the durability, as John Kennedy later said, of our own system in the face of of a very intense challenge around the globe from a totalitarian government. And space in that struggle was not a sideshow. Space was seen to be the leading edge of science and technology. And again, it didn't escape anybody's notice that they were riding up there on missiles. Now, earlier, we were talking about the fact that the Atlas worked very well as an ICBM, not so well in sending capsules up into space. But it was very difficult to convince people that when they saw a rocket blow up on the launch pad, that that same missile would be effective in wartime. This all seemed to be part of the same picture, and it all seemed to be part of the same threat and challenge. So if the United States could not credibly compete in space, then it was already witnessing a loss of faith here on Earth in terms of American resolve and American ability. You know, in the early 1960s, and John Kennedy had, had just taken office, Gallup did a poll of our allies in Western Europe, of, of West Germany and France and Britain, and found that By a more than two-to-one margin, our own allies thought that in 10 years' time, Russia would be ahead militarily, would be ahead of of the United States militarily. And the main reason for this was because the Soviet dominance of space was so well-established. They started the space race in 1957 with Sputnik, and they had established a series of firsts, one after the other. And by 1961, it, it, it just seemed that the Soviets were unbeatable. And the military implications of this seemed absolutely obvious to everyone. So, you know, we can talk about it as as public relations, but it was it was less about sort of proving the the strength and the health of American culture and more about proving the credibility of, of the United States as a force for freedom in the world in the face of an existential challenge.
0: And as it seemed with many aspects of the Soviet wielding of power, that it was more about pure thrust than any type of nuance. They had the huge rockets that could lift a a good-sized payload, but beyond that, any kind of more sophisticated and technical things, they didn't quite, quite have a handle on like the Americans seem to have.
1: This is one of the great ironies of the early space race is that the principal reason, I mean, there are a lot of reasons and we're discussing some of them, but but the main reason that the Soviets were able to jump out to such an early lead and were able to sustain it for a period of time is because they had an incredibly powerful rocket with lots of thrust. This was a rocket called the R-7 Semyorka, and that's the rocket that pushed a lot of these things up into orbit. Our rockets were leaner, and sleeker. And they had been designed that way. The Soviet rocket was extremely... I mean, we talked about the Atlas as an effective ICBM. The Soviet ICBM program was was a shambles. It was not producing effective ICBMs. And this rocket was clunky. It was hard to move. It was hard to hide. It was hard to aim. It was not very useful for doing anything other than pushing really heavy things up into space. And so that gave them an early advantage. And we had gotten away from these big, clunky, heavy, powerful rockets. And we were designing these sleek things that could deliver a nuclear payload to Moscow. I mean, that's what they were designed to do. And they seemed to be very good at at doing that if need be. And so the United States had to scramble to start to build rockets with with greater thrust. And that's one reason why when the first two Americans uh, went into space, in sequence, first Al Shepard and, and then Gus Grissom, they didn't go into orbit. They flew suborbital flights that went up and came down because the rocket that they wrote, the Redstone, was not powerful enough to push them into orbit.
0: Some of the most important scientists in the American effort came from leftovers of the V1 and V2 projects in Nazi Germany. You know, Werner von Braun and these other men were kind of almost a face of the American rocket experiments and technology. What did the public think of these former Nazis being so integral into our efforts?
1: Well, that's a good question. And I'd I'd love to know whether there was any public polling about this. I've not run across it. But I will say that the embrace of of von Braun was was uh, pretty, pretty full. He was not seen after a certain point as a necessary evil. He was the greatest salesman that the United States had for space exploration. He was on a Disney program. He was on the cover of Life magazine. He was uh, an attractive and very effective spokesman for the idea of uh, space exploration. And he had managed somehow to distance himself enough from the worst of what the Nazi regime had done that he seemed to escape responsibility of it for a period of time until the truth came out, but that was much later. And the truth was that he knew a lot more, was far more involved than he had ever said he was. But for a period of time, he seemed to be maybe one of the good germans who was only interested in 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 space flight and rockets and things and got pulled into the the war effort by hitler but there were a lot of germans around the program i mean because there was so much expertise we claimed some of them to put it a little strangely we 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 acquired them at the end of the war and the soviets acquired Others And there was some good-natured, and it was good-natured joking among the Americans, the natural-born Americans uh, at Cape Canaveral. I mean, for example, there was a a guy who was in charge of the the operation at the gantry at at Cape Canaveral named Gunter Wendt, and um, they referred to him as the pad Nazi. Uh, the launch pad Nazi. And it was so, you know, it was a good natured joke. And keep in mind that a lot of these guys had fought in World War II. So it's not like this was an abstraction for them, but there was just a kind of acceptance that this was one of the victories for the United States in the war was that we were able to claim uh, some of the the greatest rocket scientists that that the world had created. And now they were working for the United States government.
0: And one of these men had fought in World War II was John Glenn.
1: That's right. And and this is a side of John Glenn that I think that that many people don't know. I, I think we know the the sunny, smiling astronaut. We know the the Boy Scout John Glenn. We we know the Sunday school teacher John Glenn. And inevitably that's the way that he's portrayed in, in movies and and, and and in TV programs. But Glenn was a, a fearsome fighter pilot. He didn't just fight in, in these wars. He he fought fiercely and very successfully. He was a combat pilot flying Corsairs in World War II in the South Pacific. And in Korea, he was flying fighter jets, and he was flying them lower and faster and more dangerously than the others in his squadron. I mean, Glenn got a reputation in his squadron as being the guy the most willing to take risks and to just almost hurl himself at targets. There's one story, and there are many that that we could tell, but there was one moment in the Korean War where he and his commanding officer were firing on, a, on an anti-aircraft position in North Korea. His commanding officer signaled that they should get out of there, that the anti-aircraft fire was just too dangerous. So his commanding officer left, and Glenn disobeyed orders and turned around and went back at this target because he was sure he could get it the second time. Instead, what happened was he got a hole blown in the tail of his Panther, and that was the, the kind of plane he was flying, a hole the size of a basketball. And he somehow managed to get this plane back to base. And this happened again and again. I I think it was seven times he brought back a plane that people would, they would look at it when he got back to the base and they would wonder how he was even able to fly the thing. This was John Glenn. It was not the John Glenn that the public got to know, but he was the most decorated combat veteran of all of the Mercury 7. Some of them hadn't even fought in combat at all. Alan Shepard had never fought in combat which was sort of a, an embarrassment or a sore spot with him but but Glenn had a had a heck of a record
0: and Glenn flew with another pilot who was extremely famous at the time but eventually Glenn would surpass him in fame down the line.
1: He did, you know, this is one of the great side stories of this period of time is that the pilot you're referring to is is of course Charles Lindbergh and when Glenn was 6 years old in 1927 when Lindbergh had his solo flight uh, across the Atlantic, and, and Glenn was as obsessed with that as many children, and not just children, were at that time. And at one point when he was a kid, there was a rumor that that Lindbergh was flying over Glenn's little town of New Concord, Ohio, this town of 1,000 people, and he ran outside to see, and he was sure that he saw Lindbergh's plane. Nobody else was really all that sure that he actually had seen it, but he thought he had. And now you you fast forward to to 1944, and here's Glenn in the South Pacific. And Lindbergh at that point was working for the defense contractor that was building the Corsair, the plane that that Glenn was flying. And they had sent company, had sent Lindbergh out to the South Pacific to do some test runs with a squadron to see how heavy a load of bombs the Corsair could carry. And so Glenn got to go on some bombing runs with Charles Lindbergh. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. Fast forward again from 1944 to 1962 and the, and the crowds that, that came out for, for Glenn in the city of New York after his, his orbit of the earth. Four million people came out to, to see Glenn that day, weeping in the streets, climbing poles and climbing bridges to get a look at Glenn. It was the biggest crowd since three million had come out to see Charles Lindbergh in 1927.
0: Well, actually, I was referring to someone who would never probably get a parade in New York, Ted Williams, the splendid splinter.
1: Ah, well, this is, another, this is another great story is that Ted Williams, who of course became more famous hitting baseballs for the Red Sox, he was John Glenn's wingman in Korea. One of the things that, that drew me into this project that made me want to write this book was a quote that I ran across something that Ted Williams said about John Glenn. He said, The man is crazy. And I thought, that guy? (laughs) You know, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and I was familiar with John Glenn, not just by the stories about about Mercury, but John Glenn as a senator from Ohio. And there didn't seem to be anything the least bit crazy about this guy. And I wanted to understand what that meant. Why would Ted Williams say that? And, and it was stories like the one that I told you, where he got that hole blown in, in the tail of his jet. There were many, many other stories like that. Ted Williams was witness to this, and he was just in awe of John Glenn at that time and really for the rest of his life.
0: And he had this force of will to him. He had a competitive streak. And while he was seen as the genuine article, the Oshucks middle American hero, he did not meet disappointment with a cheery disposition at all.
1: He did not. And I guess it's one of the reasons he was as successful as he was. It wasn't just his, his talent, but it was his absolute determination. I mean, this was a guy, no matter what it was, was it, whether it was a flight assignment to get into those Corsairs, for example, rather than to fly what he called the bus, these big box cars in the air, these multi-engine uh, cargo planes, which is what his first assignment was supposed to be in World War II. I mean, Glenn, Glenn fought hard And he worked the system when he had to, to advance. And he advanced by dint of his talent, and he advanced by dint of his personality. But he also advanced because of his absolutely unrelenting effort. And so he did not take disappointment well. Uh, And uh, this this is something that became very clear. uh, And I know we'll talk about this, but but when he wasn't, when he didn't get to fly first in space. And Alan Shepard got that slot and and he didn't. And that was the toughest blow really of, of John Glenn's life was, was not to be the guy when he had trained as hard as anyone had and as successfully as anyone had. He was, again, as you said, he was the genuine article. He was that scout. He was that Sunday school teacher. He was absolutely authentic in front of the cameras. But there was a lot more to him than that. He was a a fiercely ambitious and competitive guy, and he was an edgy guy, and he also was an outspoken guy behind the scenes. And so he did not always build the kinds of friendships and alliances within NASA that people would have imagined when they saw his sunny disposition in public. And
0: you write about how he studied public speaking. He knew that relating to the public was very important to
1: his career. He did, and, and he was really ahead of the others. Um, he was really in his own category in that way. He did, at one point when he was at, at Quantico, take a, a class on, on public speaking and communications. He also was a natural. I mean, he just had that personality, that winning personality. He'd always had it. He had it in high school before he'd ever taken a class like this and before he'd, he'd been in the military. But he was ready. He was ready when uh, in 1957 when he he flew a, a, a jet across the United States in record speed uh, on behalf of the Navy and the Marines. And uh, he wound up with his picture on the front page of every newspaper around the country. He was ready for his close up, as they say. And um, he was so winning that a producer from the CBS game show named that tune happened to see him and his son shopping in Macy's when they were in New York because he had flown that jet from LA to New York and said, well, you know, uh, Colonel Glenn, I, I've seen your picture in the newspaper. I wonder if you'd be interested in, in coming on our program as a contestant. So he ran that by his superiors at, at the, 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 in the Marines, and they said, great, they were happy to have Glenn get as much publicity out of this as possible because they had beaten the Air Force, which had held the previous record. So Glenn wound up on prime time week after week as he and his partner, this eight-year-old kid named Eddie Hodges, uh, one week after week. And, and he, he just charmed America. And, uh, so when he became an astronaut a couple of years later, he was already famous and he was already well-skilled at standing in the spotlight with microphones and cameras in his face.
0: You have made a career of political speech writing as well. How do you judge his performances and the content of what he said in public?
1: The interesting thing about Glenn in those years is that he was absolutely masterful. He was a natural. He never felt that he had to be excessively formal. He just spoke from the heart, and uh, there was no af- affectation to it. Um, the Oshuk's quality was genuine, and uh, it really shone through. Uh, this was a time when when people got very sort of stiff and awkward in front of the cameras and felt that they needed to sound like like TV announcers or radio announcers when they were when they were speaking. Uh, on, on on TV. And Glenn just spoke like a human being and uh, very direct, very earnest, but also funny. He could be light. Um, and uh, he also was comfortable talking about things like his faith and his family. And this is not what fighter pilots did. This is not what test pilots did. So uh, Glenn had a very natural and very easy sense about him. and And the reason... That that's particularly interesting or ironic is that when you look at Glenn as a politician, um, you wonder where some of that went. I mean, he he really, um, he was a very serious minded uh, uh, senator. And he took the job very seriously. And he had what the New York Times at one point in, in the 80s called a prickly sense of integrity. And the warmth uh, that you see in those early years, in the 50s and the 1960s, was, was a little bit harder to find in John Glenn, the politician.
0: Jeff, we're having such a great time, and we've barely scratched into the surface of this book. Would you like to come back next week and talk a little
1: bit more about it? I'd love to. Thanks for the invite. All right. Super.
0: Come back next week for the second part of our interview with Jeff Shessel, who is the author of Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War, which is published by W.W. W. Norton. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library. All rights reserved.